Hey, Adam here. This is Deep Convection. And as promised, this episode is Ask Me Anything. So I went on the internet and solicited listener questions. I got a whole bunch of good ones, and I'm answering some of them here. The ones I am not answering are also good. I didn't get any bad ones, and I'm just saving them because we're going to do this again. So if you sent me a question and you don't hear the answer, please uh, hang on. If you want to send more questions, if, you, if this gives you an idea and you want to ask me something, please send it to me. You can easily find my email address through Google, or I'm also on LinkedIn, Twitter for the time being, and Blue Sky Social, and you can at me or however it works on any of those and send me your question. I will say that most of these questions are inside baseball in the sense that they're asked from the point of view of scientists. And we realize maybe that's not our whole audience, but that's who sends questions. So we're just going with it. If you're not a scientist and you have questions, send me them. I would love to hear from you. Okay, let's see how this goes. Okay, Anonymous on Twitter asks, Hey Adam, Ray, you're Ask Me Anything. How do you decide what to focus your attention on? I'm just starting my postdoc and feel like there are many questions I would like to spend time working on. But even as a postdoc, you only have finite time and energy. Interested to hear your thoughts on this. Okay, great question, super hard question there couldn't be a more important one for a scientist or maybe any human being because it's how to spend your time, right? But let's talk about it from the point of view of a scientist. First of all, this is what differentiates the great scientists from the not-so-great scientists. Lots of people have great technical skills. They can do the calculations or the lab work, make the plots, but many fewer can choose questions well or define new questions well. That's a skill we don't really know how to teach and don't teach except maybe by example. So there's a few things I can say about it. One is I think it's good to be in touch with why you're doing this work. Why are you in the field? Why do you want to be a scientist and why working in a particular field or a particular subfield, even on a particular problem. It's not to say that we can always answer that, but it's good to try. So some of us like doing the technical work, solving creative puzzles. Some of us like discovering, feeling that we've learned something new about the universe. Some want to have an impact in the outer world. I mean, people working on climate often feel, especially now, motivated by that. These are different things, and there's more you can think of. And you can't know yourself perfectly, but it's good to try. And then when faced with choices, and the further we get in our career, the more choices we have, or at least the better informed we are about them, recognize that every choice one has is an opportunity to exercise this critically important muscle. So if you're choosing where to go to graduate school or who to work with as an advisor, 
or what topic to work on. Those are often coupled. Or what to write a proposal about later, who to where to go as a postdoc, or even spending some time just learning about a new topic by reading papers or going to a bunch of talks. I think it's important not to overthink it. And I think a good value to have is curiosity, a little bit of playfulness even. I mean, science should be fun at its best, um, even though it's hard work too. And a lot of times I think what's fun is letting your mind explore new areas. But whenever we have a choice, I think it's worth the effort to struggle with it, to think about what are the consequences of this choice, what are my values and motivations, and how can I try to align those as best as possible. Recognizing that you often will never know if you made the right choice, you can't look back and see what would have happened, but that you're learning how to make these choices is the is at the crux of being a scientist, even if it's not what we teach in class. To be specific, when I was young, I wanted to do the most basic kind of research I could. And that meant working up from first principles uh, to try to explain as much as possible with as few uh, assumptions, as parsimoniously as possible. And this was how I was trained at MIT. You know, it comes out of theoretical physics and, and so on. As I've gotten older, though, anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I've been thinking much more about how our work has an impact in the world and whether we're making a difference on the climate problem. And that's a different motivation, not to say that they're necessarily at odds with each other, but it's a different motivation and it pulls me in different directions. Sometimes it's a chance to work with a collaborator uh, who you like, science-wise or otherwise. Sometimes it's there's funding. We, I don't think we should be overly motivated by funding constraints, but we have to be somewhat if we're going to survive. We have to be uh, cognizant of our own careers, but you know we don't want to be too cynical and too uh, just blowing where the winds take us so that we'll get promoted or hired. And I think it's important, too, to be cognizant of what the typical failure modes are on the different ends of the spectrum here. So if you're a postdoc, you're deciding how to spend your time. You know, the first thing about being a postdoc is you have to get some stuff done. So you don't want to be the kind of person who, you know, starts 10 projects and can't finish any of them because that's career suicide, right? You have to get things done. And we've all seen people like this. Their eyes are just bigger than their stomachs, but they're not good at following through and they don't finish things. You have to finish things. And we could talk about writing. Maybe that's for another day. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. That's part of it. You have to be able to write. But, um, you know, you have to finish things. So you can't do too many things at once. On the other hand, it's good to have your eyes be a little bit bigger than your stomach because the other failure mode is people just do the things they know how to do. You know, they take the postdoc that is the closest in the topic to what they did for their thesis because they have become comfortable in that topic and learn something about it. And so it's the path of least resistance. And it enables you to write a couple more papers, you know, quick and feel good for that minute. But eventually these things burn themselves out. You know, no problem stays interesting forever. They get solved by you or by other people and science starts to chase its own tail and get boring and and unimportant. So it's good to have some flexibility and some curiosity 
keep learning about new things, keep being open to new possibilities, and sometimes be willing to take a leap, you know, to do something different at the cost of you might waste some time. Sometimes you don't know until much later if it was wasted or not. You know, sometimes you try something, it doesn't work immediately, but then it does later or it leads to something else. But I think some amount of open-mindedness and uh, and curiosity and willingness to to explore new things is also valuable. So those are some thoughts. You're right, Anonymous, to be struggling with this and don't stop. Don't stop uh, thinking about it all the time. Don't become passive creature of habit. Choosing what, how to spend your time is a skill like any other and the people who are really good at it are the great scientists. All right. Andrew Dessler writes, I think the publication system is broken. Too much gets published for anyone to read. So no one knows what's going on, even in their field. This leads to duplication and lost results, which slows down progress. What's the solution? Andy, as you might remember, if your regular listener was a a guest on the podcast um, in season three. So thanks, Andy, for the question. And yes, first of all, I agree with the statements. The publication system is broken and too much does get published for anyone to read. I just want to emote about this for a few minutes. When, um, when I was new at Columbia and, uh, I would go to eat lunch in this room at Lamont where, um, on the first floor of the oceanography building where a lot of us eat lunch regularly, it used to be Mark Kane's office was there before he retired. Now, uh, Richard Seeger and others have their offices there. But, uh, in the early days, Mark used to have, um, on a bookshelf, a stack of issues of the journal TELUS from the 50s and 60s. TELUS was a journal published in Sweden that, in the early days of the field, was a really important journal. Um, meteorology, as you may not may or may not know, became a, a modern science in Scandinavia. And in the early days, TELUS had this status. So there were a lot of... I used to flip through it. I used to look at the papers in TELUS. And there were a lot of single-author papers by the great names in the field. You know, Ed Lorenz, Charney, which I just mentioned, other famous people like that, often single author papers about very deep conceptual issues covering a broad, uh, what today would be a very broad scope. You know, how predictable is the weather? I mean, stuff like that, right? That's what Lorenz was famous for. And some of that, some of his papers were in Telus. And it was just astonishing to read those papers because it just is not like that anymore. I mean, now you open our journals and you have papers with, you know, five, 10, 20 authors about, you know, very fine details of how some model behaves. The field, you know, it, it, this is to some extent to be expected, right? It was a young field back then. It's an older field now. The science has matured. I don't want to say the big questions have all been answered, but Some of them have been answered, others, you know, we haven't been able to answer and others maybe we haven't thought of, but, you know, the the stuff we work on has gotten more detailed and that's, and the field is a lot bigger and that's how science works. But nonetheless, it was depressing. It was a little bit depressing and this was, you know, 15, 20 years ago to, to think how much narrower and more detailed our field has gotten. But part of that is to, there's just way, way more papers and you're right, Andy, you can't keep up. I mean, just to jump back even another, you know, little bit further back in, in my history, when I was a graduate student and postdoc, I used to subscribe to, um, 
Journal of the Atmospheric Sciences and I think Journal of Climate for a while in print before everything went totally electronic. And I used to flip through them. And I mean, I didn't read all the papers, but I read, often read all the abstracts in an issue, you know, about all the different topics and, and I would, and some of the papers and I would try to keep up. Nobody can do that now. Nobody. It's just inconceivable. As Andy says, you can't even keep up in your own narrow specialty. So what's the answer? I don't know. You know, I don't know what I, I'm, what comes to my mind is I read this article. It was like an op-ed in physics today. It was probably 20 years ago. I read it and I've thought of it so many times and I wish I could find it again or remember who the author was. I've never been able to remember that and I've never been able to find it. But what it said was it was a guy talking about this problem. And this was, as I say, probably 20 years ago, uh, some physicist, you know, difference between physics and climate science doesn't matter here. So he was talking about the same problem and he was saying, you know, there's too many papers. You can't keep up. It's a fire hose, blah, blah, blah. And what, and what the way he put it was, everybody's trying to maximize their signal to noise ratio. And the signal is your papers and the noise is everybody else's papers. And that's really describes the problem, right? Because we all have, I mean, if anybody's working this field, you're supported by some kind of funding. The funding needs to show deliverables. Our deliverables in basic research are papers, more or less. So we all have to write papers, right? Every graduate student has to write a couple papers. Every postdoc has to write a couple papers. Faculty members have to produce papers every year or they, they'll get evaluated negatively. Same for, I presume, for at least some scientists in government labs. And the expectations of how many papers we have to produce have gone up. Just It's just, you know, why? I don't know. And people say we should write fewer papers, but it's not the answer. I mean, you it, like you first, right? I mean, if you could just write one great paper a year, one should do that. But nobody knows how to write one great paper a year. You write however many you write, hoping that one of them will turn out great, and you never know when you start. And plus, it's it's an arms race, right? Like, you start writing, you know, you stop writing papers first, and then I'll follow you. It's like we're all we're all competing on some level, and we all have to live in this world. What his solution was, was, this guy who wrote the article was, conferences. You go to the conference... You hear a few talks and that way you kind of keep up with what everybody's doing in a, in a compressed way because you're there and you're focused. And then you go out to the bar or the, or whatever to dinner and you talk to people and that's how the real communication happens. And I think there's some truth to that. You know, I, that's definitely, I think one reason the scientific culture that I came up in has been as sort of tight knit as it is. And why I can interview people here from all over the world. And if they're in the same scientific field, we have a lot of shared culture is because of that. It's not just the internet. It's also cheap jet travel and a lot of conferences and a lot of hanging out together. And all that is troubled now. First of all, because jet travel is, you know, burns a lot of carbon and we should try not to do that so much. I certainly am trying to fly less. Uh, but also because it's, it's can be exclusionary, right? Not everybody has the resources to do that. Scientists in the global south can't as easily, you know, stay, be at all the conferences that, that, that I go to, you know, and, uh, or even that, you know, scientists at institutions in, or in groups in the U.S. that are less well funded can't, can't do it. It's a, it's a, there's an in club aspect to it. There's an old boy network, old, maybe old boy and old girl network to that solution. And, you know, I don't know the way around it. I can just say that this podcast is part of my little, attempt to make this problem better. I mean, this podcast is not, uh, doesn't serve the purpose of communicating peer reviewed research the way papers do. I mean, it does, we do that a little, but it's just, I think other channels of communication that have the ability to cut through the noise a little bit and reach people in different ways 
are have a high value because the paper writing problem is not going to be solved. I mean, the other thing, though, is to learn how to filter the literature yourself, right? You can look at titles and abstracts and pretty quickly figure out when something's interesting or something's not. And, you know, a lot of stuff that comes out is is not interesting and one doesn't really need to read it. But, of course, to find what is interesting, you need to be somewhat on top of things. And that's where talking to your colleagues and friends and and whoever else you can in informal ways helps, you know, we help keep each other informed. So yeah. Uh, see you at AGU next week, Andy. On Twitter, Hungu Lim writes, do you have a plan for deep convection with video like a YouTube channel? I can imagine like Neil Tyson's interview series for climate scientists. That's an easy one. No, I do not have a plan to do that because I hate watching myself on video. In fact, at the beginning, listening to my voice on audio, um, you know, in recorded form, as one does when making a podcast, was kind of painful. But I got over that. But video, it's just not for me. Not going to happen. But thanks for asking. Appreciate uh, <laughs> appreciate your your interest. Um, but it's but it's not in my skill set. Okay, Virendra Gate asks by email. What are the top three things you personally, we as climate scientists and we as academics were and maybe still are wrong about? Meaning you thought that something worked in one way, but research of your own and maybe others and just experience showed that it actually works in a different way. Okay, I thought about this and I have three and they are not really from my own research. Um, one of them uh, I'm engaged with a little bit. And I think these are things that we do sort of understand now, or at least know what we don't know, but used to not. Uh, the first is the tropical Pacific. Um, all the climate models, almost without exception, predict that as the planet warms, the pattern of warming in the surface of the tropical Pacific Ocean is going to be that the east equatorial Pacific is going to warm more than the west or the areas around it. So in other words, that the warming trend will have a pattern similar to an El Nino event. And there's now increasing evidence that that may be wrong because the pattern over the last several decades, I don't know, 50 to 70 years, is the opposite, that the eastern equatorial Pacific has warmed the least or depending on which data set and which period you pick may have even cooled in absolute terms while the rest of the ocean has warmed. So in other words, it's a La Nina-like pattern. And this was first uh, written about in what I would think of as the modern way by uh, Amy Clement, um, Richard Seeger, and Mark Kane and their co-authors in the work for Amy's thesis, uh, which in the 90s, uh, she's about my generation, where um, they, using the Keynes-Ebiak model, predicted that this should happen, that, that radiative warming should at least transiently cause a La Nina-like pattern. And more recently, um, but at that time, nobody, uh, I don't want to say nobody, people didn't believe that those results because the model was too simple. And even though the observations supported it, they weren't a very, it wasn't a very long La Nina like trend. And there's a lot of variability in the Pacific. So um, the trend wasn't, uh, you could argue the trend wasn't really meaningful yet. Now there's 25 more years of data and there've been more papers by some of the same authors. And if you want to hear an extended conversation about this, listen to my interview in season one of this podcast with Richard Seeger, 
where he explained their paper about this. This is Seeger et al. 2019, I believe, Nature Climate Change, if my memory serves. And it's one of my favorite episodes because he explains the paper to me and I actually came to understand the paper during that recorded conversation. So it's a real, uh, it's a genuine act of um, scientific communication that happened in real time there. Anyway, they, there's more evidence now. Um, the, the observations have kept going in the opposite direction from the models and Richard and now many others, um, there have been quite a few papers up about this have come up with a bunch of different hypotheses for why the models might be getting it wrong. I think it's still unclear. The models could be right, but there's a decent chance they're wrong. And if they're wrong, it really, really matters because in the same way that El Nino and La Nina events have hugely different impacts, uh, climate impacts, they've caused floods and droughts and hurricanes and stuff in opposite places, um, have opposite patterns to a large degree of impact. Long-term trends of opposite structure would presumably similarly have very different impacts. So for climate adaptation, this is really a problem. And our group put out a paper. I'm the first author in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Richard's a co-author and, and others, Mark Kane and Amy, um, along with uh, Susanna Camargo and Jiang Li and, and, and our group. And we point out that this is a problem for, for hurricanes specifically and for extreme events and adaptation generally. I think the greatest interest in this problem has been so far from the climate sensitivity community who talk about this as the sea surface temperature pattern effect. The pattern of sea surface warming has an effect on the overall rate of global warming. And if the models are wrong in this sense, it means that their climate sensitivities, the rate at which they warm for a given CO2 change is a bit too high. But I think that is a smaller ramification than the ramification for for impacts regionally. So anyway, pattern of warming in the tropical Pacific, that's my first thing that I think um, we got wrong for a while and might still be getting wrong, although, you know, it's highly debated. The second one is um, we used to say, uh, used to see this in a lot of climate discourse in the, in the press and I think even maybe sometimes in scientific publications, even if we stop emitting CO2, we'll keep warming for some period of time for some number of decades, which made people feel uh, an even greater degree of doom, I think, than, than maybe is, is warranted. And this is now wrong. The previous thinking was based on climate simulations with a specified amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So the idea was that if the amount of CO2 would stay constant, you know, instead of rising, if the if the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere would flatten out, then you do keep warming for some decades after that, because of ocean heat uptake, the ocean has accumulated some heat. And that takes time to come into equilibrium with the atmosphere. And so uh, that lead that's an it gives an inertia to the system where it keeps warming. But that is not doesn't represent the situation. Uh, with regard to emissions. So now we have models that don't specify the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere or the amount of greenhouse gases, let's be more general in the atmosphere, but specify emissions, which means that they're simulating the carbon cycle. They're simulating how the carbon moves through the system and predicting the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And so if you stop emitting CO2, if emissions really go to zero, what the models now predict is that the ocean and land will then draw down some of the CO2 in the atmosphere, which they're always doing. They're always taking carbon out, but they're 
fighting against continued emissions, if they don't have to fight with emissions anymore because the emissions stop, then some of the carbon that's in the atmosphere will go into the ocean and the land and the CO2 concentration will actually drop for a while after we stop emitting. And so there's still the ocean thermal inertia, but that's compensated by this drop in CO2 due to ocean uh, land uptake. And my understanding of literature is that these two things roughly compensate so that if we really stopped emitting uh, greenhouse gases today, warming would more or less stop today and the temperature would remain flat after that point. Now, to reduce the temperature, we'd have to, you know, to go back to the pre-industrial temperature, for example, we'd have to suck a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's, a, you know, that problem remains. But nonetheless, we now understand because of models that include the carbon cycle that zero emissions means zero warming more or less uh, immediately. And the third one is wildfires. I am no expert on wildfires, but the crazy fires we've seen, especially in the Western United States and Canada, but also elsewhere in the planet, um, Australia, Europe, and, and elsewhere, the, the the explosion almost literally in wildfires that we've had over the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, I think has been a surprise. I'm not an expert. I would love to have an expert call me up or write me an email and tell me if they think this is wrong. But my sense is that we always expected that a warmer world would have more fires. That is not surprising. What is surprising is how fast and to what degree it has happened and you know, there's pretty compelling studies from Park Williams, who used to be here at Columbia, and others showing that uh, good evidence that at least some of the recent increase in fires is anthropogenic, is due to warming. It's hard to say all of it because, you know, there's forest management and all kinds of other complicated issues, but some of it's due to warming. But why it has happened so fast and so uh, awfully, I don't think we understand that. Maybe I have to get somebody who has real expertise in this um to talk about it on the podcast. Anyway, those are my three things. The Blob Warned Us asks on Twitter, there seems a growing awareness in the academic community that the skepticism and denial of climate change in the public sphere is motivated by the policy prescription largely derived from one side of the political divide. Are there libertarian or Republican policy suggestions? Okay, here's my take on this. I think many others would agree. Yes, I think it's not just awareness. I think there's compelling evidence that the skepticism and denial of climate change in the public sphere is motivated by the policy prescription. People on the right just don't want to stop burning fossil fuels for whatever reasons, you know, money, power, culture war, you name it. And that drives antipathy to climate science and so-called skepticism or denial. I don't think there's any other plausible interpretation. We're not, I think we know now you can read Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Reskis and Eric Conway or many other things. And I think the evidence is quite compelling that this is not a legitimate scientific debate that those who, who say the planet isn't really warming due to human activity or it's not really that bad are just totally dispassionately, uh, you know, looking at the evidence. It's called, what is it called? Uh, solution aversion. That's what it's called. Anyway, are there libertarian and Republican policy suggestions? 
no serious ones to my knowledge that are really being promoted visibly in the uh, political sphere. That is, you do not see the Republican Party in Congress saying anything serious about climate. Occasionally, there are some people who try to say, oh, we should plant more trees or, you know, we should do innovation to solve it, whatever that means. Or, And maybe there are think tanks, uh, you know, on the right side of the political spectrum that are coming up with more serious things. Um, and I think it could be possible, you know, I think one could have what used to be called conservative views um, and try to come up with things that would actually address the climate problem, you know, markets and choice and so on. But I, I just don't see it happening. I think it's become a culture war issue. Like everything else in our politics, it's become tribal. And at least in the United States, the Republican Party and the right just just is against even talking or thinking about climate as an issue at all and wants to dismiss it. That is my take on it. I wish it were not so, but that's how it looks to me. It's how it looked 10 years ago, and it looks more that way today, with the exception that you don't hear as much outright denial. I mean, you do from some people, but I think it's more shifted towards, oh, well, it's not that bad, or I'm not a scientist, or kind of evasion and dodge, but the fundamental attitude hasn't changed. Okay, so somewhat relatedly, Mark England writes, Hi, Adam, I have two questions for your podcast. You can choose whichever you think is more interesting or relevant. I have recently been moving in the direction of trying to make my research more policy relevant. However, there's always been a question in my mind about how effective we as scientists can be about informing policy. It seems to me that our ability to inform policy is limited to very small windows of time, often linked to disasters or when the political winds align, and even then the information digested by policymakers is somewhat arbitrary. I wonder how you think early career researchers can best inform and influence policy. My second question relates to politics and climate science. In the U.S., believing, in quotes, in climate change is a highly partisan act, which means essentially that enacting policies which align with the results of a lot of our research will only be done by one party. How do you think about this? The need to get things done, but also you don't want to appear partisan, else people may not believe your research. In parentheses, he writes, this is somewhat less of a problem in the U.K., where up until recently the conservative party was actually pretty good on climate change relative to expectations. Okay, I'm going to try to answer both of these, starting with the second one. Believing in climate change has become a partisan act only because those who choose not to believe it have made it so. I mean, it shouldn't be, right? So the question is, if I do research and I said, hey, something bad is happening, and somebody else doesn't like it, and says, oh, you're just saying that because you're a left-wing, you know, communist, whatever, am I now... Is my scientific finding now political because of that? You know, of course, I mean, some climate science has political implications and, you know, we can't be afraid of that. We have to try to look at the evidence dispassionately, but then be cognizant of our own politics as we interpret the evidence. I don't think we can work in this field and pretend that what we do has nothing to do with politics because it does. But I don't think we can cede the ground to say, you know, that our whole field is political. Because the right has said our whole field is political, everything we do is a partisan act, and therefore it's somehow invalidated. I just don't think we can cede that ground. It's it's not uh, right, right? In other words, if some, it's, it's like when you have two sides of an argument and one side keeps getting more and more extreme. I think this is what's been happening in the United States. Then does that mean we have to 
follow and you know try to split the be nonpartisan meaning split the difference between the two poles of the political spectrum even if one of them goes off the deep end i just don't buy that so my view of this is when i think about how to orient my stuff politically when i'm speaking about climate publicly or writing about it i try to not make it more political than i have to but not make it less political than i should so I will not dilute any scientific conclusion because I think it might be viewed by people of different political leanings as political. I just think you you can't please everybody. You know, when you have a deeply polarized society, you can't please everybody. So to some extent, I think we have to accept that we are speaking to the converted. I mean, we don't need to politicize things more than necessary. We don't need to be excessively confrontational we don't need to be you know sarcastic or snarky or know-it-alls or i mean i think you do see these things in public climate debate i think we have to be open to explaining and discussing the scientific evidence with those who are open-minded i mean i think there's not that many people out there now who are you know actively engaged in public debate in any visible way outside of, you know, the dark corners of social media who are really engaged on climate and simply don't know the facts. I mean, it's a, it's sort of a choice not to know them on some level, but I think there are people who legitimately don't understand the science. And I think we should be open to discussing it with them, but we can't be open to cynical trolling right to people that are just repeating the same old tire i mean you can go on real climate it used to be that gavin schmidt and others ran or you know um any other forum where climate scientists or or those interested in climate have or on social media you know a lot of stuff is just trolling a lot of stuff is just repeating the same garbage over and over again and i don't think we can let ourselves get sucked into that i think we have to present our ideas and an argument in a way that they can be taken seriously and engaged with by those who have open minds and are willing to listen to evidence and who are not so blinded by their political views that we can't do that. And we have to recognize that we all have political views. I mean, I'm not apolitical. Nobody's apolitical. And I think it's better to recognize one's politics than to pretend it's not there in, in, in public debates about what to do about climate. But I think that, you know, there's only so much you can do in a highly polarized society. And so then the question about how do we make our research more policy relevant and do we only have limited windows? This is true. You know, this is the frustrating thing. Big things happen policy-wise only when the winds are right, when the stars align. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, that the Biden administration got through Congress by a hair, you know, with Joe Manchin signing on at the last minute. That's the hugest thing ever to happen in United States climate policy. And it happened because the stars aligned just barely. And, you know, I'm not a really a policy person. I'm a scientist. So I, I can claim no credit whatsoever for anything that went into the Inflation Reduction Act. Other than that, I, you know, I voted for some of the people involved. But I think part of the answer was that a lot of scholars, including a lot of academics and a lot of experts, a lot of policy wonks that think about these issues have been preparing for that moment for a long time, have been writing plans and white papers and thinking about what workable policies could look like, getting ready for that moment when it could happen, and also thinking about how to get it through politically. And I think the um, 
success of the IRA was because it was pitched as an investment, putting money into giving people money to do things rather than as a tax or, uh, you know, a cap and trade. Those are arguments that made sense at one time, but they were politically unfeasible. So I, so I guess what I'm saying is, yes, it only happens at magical times, but we got to be ready for those times, you know, and that means doing the work even when it looks like it's not going to go anywhere, when it looks like there's no market for it. Um, I think that's the answer. The world is what it is. We have to deal with it. And that means doing policy related work, even when it's in a sort of shadow government way, hoping for the right moment to come. All right. On LinkedIn, Patrick Kelly writes, I'll bite. What is one career path outside of climate and science generally you could see yourself pursuing and enjoying? Oh, thanks, Patrick. Uh, Patrick is at as at uh, Aon, we work with him. Our our team works with uh, his group at Aon, and uh, and Patrick, if I memory serves, was also a student or postdoc of Brian Mapes at one point, who's been Brian's been on the podcast. Okay, thanks, Patrick. This is the only question that's really about me and my career, um, which is fine. So uh, those who know me or who have heard me maybe talk about it on here know that when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a jazz musician. And I even kind of tried and I worked for a minute as a sound engineer and I played in a bunch of bands and it never really uh, went anywhere. I mean, I can't say, I shouldn't say it didn't go anywhere. I I did, you know, it went somewhere, but I was never going to make a living on it or at least not in the way I wanted to. I had a sort of um, uh, ego about being a, a fine artist or something, you know, an intellectual I didn't want to do uh, commercial music as a career. And so, um, you know, I switched to science. But that was one answer. Now I have this vision that when I retire, I'll write books. I'll sit around and write books for non-scientist audiences, not textbooks. You know, like I've written one, Storm Surge, about Hurricane Sandy. came out in 2014. And I sort of, my vision is that as I get old, I'll write more. And then I'll get good at it. And then when I retire, that's what I can do. But I have been unsuccessful so far in writing the second book. Maybe when I retire, I'll be able to do it. But, um, you know, is that a career? I don't know. Uh, you know, I, uh, both that and music are very hard to make a living at. But they're things that I like to do and that a few people in the world manage to make a living at. I have thought in recent years about maybe working in the business world in some capacity because we work a lot with people in the reinsurance industry. It's been exciting to see this new private sector climate risk analytics um, field come into being. I'm an external advisor to Jupiter Intelligence and uh, have friends at a lot of the and former students and postdocs at a lot of the other companies in the space. And it's been exciting to see it. I have, you know, complicated mixed feelings about the relationship of the public and private sectors. And maybe we'll talk about that uh, later. You know, I think it would depend on what the job is, but I have thought about it and I continue to think about it, whether I should stay in academia for the rest of my career or whether, you know, something outside of academia in the climate space, in the space of defining climate risk and trying to figure out how to act on the information, something in climate adaptation. I think there, I don't know what the right job would be for me. Uh, I don't know if it exists and if it exists, does exist. I don't know if I can get it. But I've thought about it, and I continue to think about it.
Okay. I thought that went all right. And we'll do it again soon. So send me your questions. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez, although I edited this one. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.